If one understands that first and foremost countries have overcome their problems, there are no serious macroeconomic imbalances in the euro area today. No country has a serious competitiveness problem vis-à-vis -vis the other member states of the euro area. There are no big current account deficits. Then why should the normalization of interest rates lead to another euro crisis? Welcome back to In The Room, a series of conversations with people who witnessed and shaped Europe's recent history, often but not always behind the scenes. Today's interview is with someone who was plucked from behind the scenes nearly 13 years ago to create and lead the Eurozone Sovereign Bailout Fund. Klaus Regling had been in the room since the early 90s as Chief International Policy Advisor to Germany's Finance Minister. After an unusual career break in the hedge fund world, he served as the European Commission's Director General for Economic and Financial Affairs, from 2001 to 2008. Two years later, when financial contagion spread from Greece across all the most indebted countries, finance ministers picked him to build and run their 440 billion euro European Financial Stability Facility, or EFSF. Two years later, this was turned into a capitalised European Stability Mechanism, or ESM. As the ESM's managing director, Klaus Regling was a central figure in the Greek, Irish, Portuguese, Spanish and Cypriot bailouts. Along with Mario Draghi and Thomas Wieser, he was a critical player in the stabilisation and resurrection of the Eurozone from its existential crisis in 2010 to 2012. But as you'll hear, he was more than a crisis manager. As one of the few remaining policymakers from Helmut Kohl's administration, Klaus still carries that combination of idealism and political realism that is so lacking today and he brings big ideas to the table. We talked about his upbringing in a political household in northern Germany, his compatriots' views on the European project, how to build a half-trillion euro fund from scratch, how to deal with stigma, and who it actually was who saved the euro, and much more. If you enjoy this series, please do rate and review it on your apps. It really helps. Anyway, I bring you Klaus Regling. Okay, can we begin by talking about your background? You were born and raised in northern Germany in the 50s and 60s in a quite political household. Can you tell us more? Yes, that's right. Born in 1950, so just five years after the end of World War II. So I remember the results of that. My hometown, Lübeck, like many other cities, were still heavily destroyed. And slowly the Reconstruction happened and the economic miracle in Germany happened then in the 50s and 60s. My father was a member of the German parliament from 1953 in Bonn, which on the one hand meant I didn't see him very often, but when he was around, but even when he was not present, politics was always part of family life and was often discussed around the dinner table and Politicians called in those days. The only way to communicate was by fixed telephone lines. So when he was in Lübeck, people who became famous afterwards, like Willy Brandt or Helmut Schmidt, sometimes were on the phone when I picked it up, and that was quite normal. So in a way, I grew up that way, political life. But my father was also running a small business. He was a carpenter, and um, it was clear how businesses work. When it was running well, 
we could spend a bit more money when it was not go, doing so well, we couldn't go on vacation. Mm -hmm. So all that was, I think, good education. And could you tell us more about your father's background in social democratic politics before and during the war? He was always secretly a member of the party, even during the war, during the Nazi times. That was one reason why he was then um, asked to, to go into politics more actively after the war. But he grew up rather poor. His father was killed in the First World War when he was only seven. He had to leave school early because his mother didn't have the money to pay the school fee. He opened his own business because there was huge unemployment. So really difficult times for many people, obviously, in Germany in the 20s and 30s, but also for him. And did he fight in the Second World War? No, he was running his carpentry because it was decided that he had to produce things that were important for the wall, like producing boxes for ammunition and things like that. So he was lucky in that sense. And you went on to university in Hamburg and Regensburg to study economics. Did you get caught up in the radical student life at the time? That was unavoidable in those days. Um, 68, 69, many European countries, France, but also in Germany, there were very radical moments. And I remember when I started studying economics in Hamburg, the first year or so, half the seminars and lectures were not taking place or they were heavily disturbed by leftist students, radical students. But in general, of course, Germany was an uproar. I myself, of course, like almost everybody else, demonstrated against the Vietnam War in front of the U.S. consulate in Hamburg, standing in front of tear gas cannons. Very exciting times. And in those days, did you consider your father's politics to be quite conservative or were you sort of mainstream social democrat yourself? No, of course, at that age, I was a bit more to the left and he was an old style social democrat. So he was more in the center. We always got along well, but of course, the age difference meant that I was a bit more on the left. So after university, you opted to work for the IMF in 1975. How did working for the fund and working in Washington change you? So it was my first job after graduating from universities in Germany as an economist. And it was a dream job, of course. If you are a macroeconomist and want to work in that field, the IMF is the best place to go. So I was very lucky to start working there. I'm not even 25 years old, working on the World Economic Outlook for four years. And that is the best possible training one can get as a global economist. One understands the world economy much better afterwards. But also, I think it was important to understand what are the advantages and benefits of the European social and economic model, because that's quite different from the US model. And also traveling on behalf of the IMF in Africa and Asia, it became clear that Europe had its big advantages. And sometimes it's easier to see it when you live outside the continent. And you went back there, you came back to Bonn for five years and returned to the fund. Why did you choose to go back? So I had interesting years in the German Ministry of Finance, where I also get my first involvement in European monetary affairs. Those were the years where the exchange rate mechanism went through some realignments and 
or with policy disagreements between Germany and France um, on who should revalue and who should devalue. And I had my first weekends in Brussels during such realignment meetings, so all quite interesting. But then in the mid-80s, it all seemed a bit slow in Bonn and Germany. Nobody was anticipating the fall of the Berlin Wall. So it just seemed to be more interesting to have a second time at the IMF, working on global issues again. And that was indeed the case, working on international capital market issues, on debt issues. I also moved then two years to Indonesia to work as the IMF representative in that country. And all that was fascinating. Well, when you did come back to Germany, you came back in the wake of reunification. And as the Maastricht Treaty was being approved and went straight into difficult negotiations over the Stability and Growth Pact, what was that like from the inside? Was there quickly a sense inside the ministry and the chancellery that the treaty had been agreed in haste and left too much fiscal business undone? No, not really. It took several years. The Maastricht Treaty was negotiated when I returned to Bonn. It was signed shortly thereafter. And we knew there would be several years, and there had to be several years of convergence, economic convergence, economic policy convergence, before monetary union could begin. But it was always clear that the fiscal issues would play a big role, how to conduct fiscal policies after the beginning of monetary union. The convergence criteria that determine when a country can join the monetary union, and they are still in place today, they are valid for the time before monetary union or before a country joins monetary union. It was not really well defined what would happen afterwards. The famous thresholds of 3% fiscal deficit and 60% debt they were very binding for the beginning of monetary union, but they were not really well defined as limits for after the beginning of monetary union. And that's why the idea of having clearer framework for the conduct of fiscal policies after the beginning of monetary union should be developed. I proposed that in the ministry in the mid-90s, and the first German proposal for the Stability and Growth Pact I was asked then to draft. We had a working group with German Bundesbank where Ottmar Issing's people came to my office and also people from the Ministry of Economy in Bonn. And we drafted the first proposal, which was then presented to all the other member states. And it was a long process. There was a lot of support from particular smaller countries to have something like the Stability Pact because they were aware that if the big countries messed up their fiscal policies, they would suffer. But it was a long process, it required many meetings through the nights, also European Council meetings, summits had to put the final touches on it, and that happened in October, November 1997, so about a year before Monetary Union began then on the 1st of January 1999. And during that time, you were working closely with the finance minister, Theo Weigel, who was also the leader of the CSU, while the chancellor was the leader of the Christian Democratic Union, um, Helmut Kohl. I always got the impression during that time that Kohl was perhaps more willing to make compromises and Weigel in the finance ministry were more 
hard line. Is that a right characterization of that time? No, I don't really think so. The difference was more that Kohl, who was a historian by training, Weigel was a lawyer, but he was in charge of the finance ministry and also the Bundesbank. They had different perspectives. So Kohl did not focus so much on economic and financial issues. That was for the finance ministry and the central bank. That's why they wanted more details. But there was no fundamental disagreement. I always remember what Hans Tietmeier said as president of the Bundesbank. He said, monetary union can be really good for Europe and for European integration, but it has to be done well. If it's not done well, then we run into problems and it will be bad for European integration. And that was something that I fully understood and also took as my motto when I worked on monetary union, that to create the euro was really good, important, many benefits, but it has to be done well. And it's not surprising that people who work in the finance ministry and the Bundesbank focus then more on financial details than the chances they're supposed to do. And again, there seemed to be a change of sentiment from Germany towards the European project and the European institutions from when Gerhard Schröder came in. And by in 2001, you had become Director General of Economic and Financial Affairs at the Commission itself, and you caught the full force of this. Can you talk us through that and how lasting its effects were on fiscal coordination and the problems that arose a decade on? Yes, so when Schröder already became Chancellor in 1998, but when the economy was not doing well, famously the economist declared Germany the sick man of Europe sometime in 2001 or so. Unemployment numbers were very high, 5 million people in Germany, very high by German standards. And then the Schröder government tried to do more on the fiscal side and decided to ignore the rules of the Stability and Growth Pact, which was a kind of a shock for the system because Germany was a country that had insisted on this pact. I mean, it was particularly difficult because France also in 2003 was running fiscal deficits that were not complying with the rules. And the two largest EU member states doing it together was particularly bad for the system and created an unhealthy precedent and from the European Commission side, we tried to argue against that. I was, of course, as Director General, very much involved, together with my commission at the time, Pedro Solvis, who also was convinced that the Commission had to supervise and insist on the existing rules. They were part of the legal system, and therefore the Commission proposed to the Council, which was the system at the time, that Germany and France were out of compliance and the German government didn't like that at all. Also attacked me personally. But what is more important that this created a precedent and it was very difficult later on to tell smaller countries that they had to comply with the rules when everybody remembers that the two largest countries had not done that. We set the scene a bit for German attitudes towards integration and the euro, but I was remembering something a senior French official told said to me about it 10 years ago about German behavior during the first years of the debt crisis. And he said, this is a quote, they feel betrayed. They were told that lending out their credit worthiness, their low inflation and low interest rates would persuade everyone to copy their policies. And instead, everyone else just went on holiday. 
Was he right? Do you think that was the sentiment at the beginning of the crisis? It's a little bit too simple because we just talked about what happened in 2003 when Germany and France ignored the route. So it was no longer so clear cut that Germans want stability and fiscal rigor and others don't. So after that incident, that was no longer so clear cut. Also, it was never just Germany against France. In 2003, they acted together, actually. But then also later on, there were always a number of countries around Germany and a number of countries around France. So those are the two countries that often represent two different camps, particularly on the fiscal side, but not always, not like in 2003 when they were together. But in several countries and probably in some like Finland and Netherlands, even more than in Germany, there is this kind of feeling. I heard that when I went to these countries after the euro crisis broke, a kind of betrayal, but probably even more than in Germany. In 2010, you became the face of the effort to rescue the Eurozone when you were made managing director of the European Financial Stability Facility, the EFSF. How were you chosen? Could you give us the background story to how you were chosen for that job? Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. But of course, it was in the middle of a crisis. Everything had to happen very quickly. The EFSF legal contract was signed by the Euro area member states in May 2010. And then there was a task force asked to find the CEO for the new EFSF. And they presented a short list with names in the next Eurogroup in June 2010. And Jean-Claude Juncker, at the time the president of the Eurogroup, didn't like those names. And I don't know the names, so I cannot mention them. I wouldn't mention them. But he said we need somebody more with the right experience in markets and economics who understands Europe. And he suggested my name in the Eurogroup meeting. And then I was asked to come to an interview the next morning. Luckily, I was in Brussels, so I could go to Luxembourg the next morning. And it was decided within hours that I should become the CEO of the EFSF. And I started almost immediately working without any staff with no office, just using my private telephone and laptop. And then from July 2010, I got a few people from the ECB, the Commission, the EIB, and we started recruiting. And everything had to happen very quickly because in only six months later, there was a request to give a loan to Ireland and we had to issue a bond to finance that credit and that was only possible by then because we had achieved a AAA rating from the rating agencies. So I spent about three months of my life only negotiating with rating agencies, whom I had told earlier in speeches that they had been too liberal giving AAA ratings to all kinds of dubious products. But of course, I wanted a AAA for the EFSF. was not easy to convince them. But luckily, all that was done by the end of 2010 so that we could issue our first EFSF bond ever in January 2011. At the time, we were only eight people at the EFSF, but we had the support from the EIB and the German debt office. We issued 5 billion euro, was nine times oversubscribed, which happened later on quite often. But at the time, it was the heaviest oversubscription ever seen in financial markets. So it worked, but then we had to continue to 
issue bonds to finance Greece and Ireland and Portugal. And we had to convince financial markets that the strategy to overcome the euro crisis would work. And that was my main task. And that period, 2011 to 12, felt like a time when Eurozone ministers and officials were feeling their way for a comprehensive settlement, but still failing to go big as the Americans were advocating. As an insider, but someone with IMF experience and without a domestic constituency to pacify like the politicians did, did you want to go big at the time? And if so, how would you have done this? It's correct that some people, particularly also in the US government, always asked for more, but that's just not possible when you deal with all the euro area member states. So about 15 at the time, they all have their democratic processes, parliamentary procedures. So one cannot just say we put several hundred billion euro into the window. Maybe we don't need it, but we put it there. You can only put it there when you have the agreement from all the parliaments. That's the one side. The other side is that I would argue we went big because the EFSF, after some iterations, had a lending capacity of more than 400 billion euro. The ESM had then a lending capacity for an additional 500 billion euro. Those are big numbers, particularly in those days. Now, maybe we are a bit spoiled because next generation EU has 850 billion. But at the time, those were very big numbers. And when I see what we did to help Greece, Greece received about 200 billion euro in loans from the EFSF and ESM. That's more than 100% of Greek GDP. No country has ever received a public sector loan of this magnitude. Never, nothing even close. So I would argue we went big. Actually, on Greece, it seemed to me that you were the only person who ever really made the positive case for the Greek bailout and how much of it was a grant element. Do you feel that it was maybe undersold on the creditor side? And can you maybe talk us through your calculations around the grant element? Yeah, Greece benefited greatly from our lending. Of course, they also benefited from the private sector debt write-down, the PSI, which came a bit late, but it was a new approach in the monetary union that should never have happened, but it became unavoidable. And that was also from the private sector, the biggest PSI ever. And Greece benefited more than 100 billion euro from that operation. From the official side, and this is the traditional division of labor that we also have seen during the Asian crisis, the Latin American debt crisis, Private creditors, if unavoidable, have to accept haircuts. That's their contribution. While the public creditors typically don't provide haircuts, except for the very, very poorest countries, but not like for Mexico, Brazil, or Korea. They provide fresh money and on favorable terms. And if I take the example of Greece, so Greece benefited more than 100 billion euro from private creditors through haircuts. But the public sector gave first the Greek loan facility, the IMF gave loans. And as I mentioned, EFSF and ESM provided more than 200 billion in loans. And that's a big advantage of the ESM at interest rates compared to the IMF that are really very, very low. And these are, these loans have a much longer maturity so that Greece continues to benefit greatly. The latest loan repayment to the ESM will only be in 2054. 
The IMF typically provides loans for 10 years, but it was clear that Greece would not really be able to regain that sustainability in that 10-year period. That's why the Eurogroup again and again, with the proposals from the ESM and the European Commission, agreed to provide much longer maturities at very low interest rates because EFSF, ESM, with their AAA rating, paid low interest rates to the bond market. And it was also agreed very early on in our operation that we would charge to the borrowing countries only our own cost. That's why Greece, like the other countries, Portugal, Ireland, Spain, Cyprus, saved a lot of interest payments. We, the ESM is an estimate. One cannot have very hard data, but the estimate how much countries saved in their interest payments because of the low interest rates that EFSF and ESM charge. And the number is quite amazing. During the first 10 years of EFSF-ESM operation, these five countries saved 120 billion euro in interest payments. And that means real budgetary savings. Greece alone, 80 billion out of the 120 billion. And 80 billion euro for Greece, that's 40% of GDP over a 10-year period. And Greece continues to have these savings for the next 30 years because that's the maturity of the EFSF ESM loans. What about on the policy conditionality side? I mean, it's often said that the policy conditionality was too harsh. In retrospect, do you share that view or do you feel that it made sense, that the structure of the programs made sense? Mistakes happen, that's very clear and unfortunately almost unavoidable when the crisis is really big and decisions have to be taken very fast, very quickly then one has to take decisions without knowing everything that one would like to know. And therefore, mistakes happen. And I think when I look at Greece, one we probably should have paid more attention to the structural side from the beginning. But overall, I think it was unavoidable what the conditionality that came with these huge amounts of lending because Greece, when the crisis started, had a fiscal deficit of 15% of GDP and current account deficit of about 15% of GDP. And that had to be brought down. And when a fiscal deficit of this magnitude has to be reduced, it is always painful. And it had to be reduced, because if it had not been reduced, it would have meant that the friends of Greece, mainly the European partners, Elizabeth, the IMF, would have been forced to continue to finance those deficits forever. Nobody was prepared to do that. I already mentioned the numbers. They are quite striking. The amount of public funds that the friends of Greece were willing to give to Greece at very low interest rates. So if people argue that the adjustment was too fast, too harsh, then they in a way argue that the friends of Greece should have provided more money to Greece. And that was just not in the cards. So, I mean, as you said, a number of mistakes were made early in the crisis. But two perhaps stand out at the European level. The refusal to let the Irish bail in the Anglo-Irish bondholders. And as you mentioned, the delay to the Greek debt swap. Do you think, in retrospect, these were really impossible, politically impossible at the time? Or were they doable? Yeah, I think the two examples you mentioned are indeed two big problems, and then I mentioned there are smaller ones in the structure of the conditionality 
which measures to focus on because there has to be certain sequencing. But those are details which are important and mistakes happen. But these two examples are there. With hindsight, clearly there should have been a bail-in of the Irish bank creditors. That was not possible to do very quickly because, and not in the beginning of the euro crisis, because there were no mechanisms, there were no tools. In a monetary union, this should never happen. Therefore, it was not surprising that we didn't have those tools. With hindsight, would have been better to have them. With hindsight, would have been better to have the ESM already in place when the crisis broke. We were not prepared for the euro crisis. That's clear. That's why there was no ESM. There was no land of last resort for the sovereigns. There was no mechanism for bail-ins. And there was no mechanism for PSI, for private sector involvement, for the debt, big debt swap. All that had to be developed. And against the background, the conviction of many that this should never happen in the monetary union, it became unavoidable, unfortunately, because the crisis was so deep, but we were not prepared. That's why there was, were these delays, they were costly, we learned. It seems to me the problem is that we do now have the ESM. It is this established agency and it has big financial firepower. But the problem is that it's become a stigma in some countries, but in particular Italy. Effectively, it's made recourse to this mechanism politically impossible, even if it's needed. And the experience of the pandemic support instrument you set up is an example of that. What do you think can be done to remove this stigma? And by the way, when Italy ran into problems in 2018, were you ever approached as a potential lender at the time? So the word stigma, one has to be careful. I think it's clear that in some countries there's a political stigma associated with the ESM, but there's no market stigma. That's very clear. You know, I heard this often in financial markets. They are happy that the ESM exists. They were also very happy when the pandemic crisis support instrument was developed in response to the COVID pandemic. And even though it was not used by any country, its existence was seen as credit positive by markets. It's quite similar with the IMF, that the IMF has also several insurance-type instruments. And even if they are not used, markets know they exist. And because they exist, it means if there's a problem, they can be activated relatively quickly unlike a situation where one has to create new instruments, which always takes a bit longer. So that's why it's credit positive, no market stigma. Political stigma, because in some countries, particularly in Italy, as you say, it was the ESM was used to create domestic problems in the coalition government, and that unfortunately prevented using that instrument at the time. But at the same time, it was a period where money was easily available. The ECB continued its very generous monetary policy, partly because of the pandemic. So there was no immediate need for public sector funding via the ESM, very different from six, seven years earlier. In the future, we will see when the ESM will be needed again for markets. It's reassuring to know it's there, it's up and running, and can be tapped if there's a need. Towards the end of your second term, you did something which struck me as unusual for someone in a role like yours. You made two big policy proposals. The first was for a quantified stabilization instrument with a politically workable architecture. 
And the second was for an increase in the public debt target from 60% to 100% of GDP. And I wondered why you'd done this. Were you saying out loud what you thought other people believed but couldn't say? Were you acting as some kind of outrider? Well, the underlying reason why I indeed made these proposals is that I thought as my role as head of the ESM to always look what else needs to be done to make monetary union work better. In a way, that's what I've been doing the last 35 years. Always try to intervene and work hard to make monetary union work better. At times that included being director general of DG ECFIN, supervising the monetary union and trying to identify problems that were arising. And we did that in that period in 2006, for instance, the DG ECFIN, my department, put out the first report where we discussed and analyzed the emerging competitiveness problems in a number of euro area member states like Greece and Portugal that I came up with a proposal how to reform the Stability and Growth Pact is partly related to the fact that I have been there from the beginning of the Stability Pact and therefore I am always interested in that topic. And the European Commission early last year invited everybody, including institutions and academics, to come forward with proposals how to reform the Stability and Growth Pact and then that's when I decided that the ESM should also participate in that because we had that invitation. And I myself got quite a bit involved and looked at the numbers and came to the conclusion that the world has changed so much for good and bad reasons that we could change even some of the key parameters of the stability and growth pact, not the 3% deficit target, as a threshold for, as a cap in normal times, but that's the 60% debt limit was no longer really appropriate from an economic perspective. If it was appropriate in the late 80s, early 90s, when Maastricht was negotiated and the stability pact was developed, then given that economic variables had changed significantly, it would no longer be the appropriate number for the future. And that's why I proposed to move to 100%. It was misunderstood by some. Some thought this means now all countries that are below 100 should spend more money. That was not the idea. The idea was that countries that had debt ratios above 100% of GDP should really then be looked at more carefully, while for the others it was less relevant from an economic monetary union perspective. And the proposal to create what I we call a central fiscal capacity for macroeconomic stabilization, came from the analysis what is still missing in the monetary union. A lot has happened um, the last 10, 15 years. Important institutional gaps in the architecture of the monetary union were closed during the last decade with the creation of the ESM. Before that, there was no um, end of last resort for sovereigns. Now we have that, that's important. We have the begin of banking union with the single supervisor, the bank resolution authorities, a number of other financial market supervisors, EBA, ESMA, IOPA. All that was very good and continues to be helpful. The fact that these institutions exist today 
help us also to deal with the pandemic and now the implications of the war in Ukraine. That's all good. And when I look then what's still missing in the monetary union to make it work better, to be better prepared for new crisis, to be more resilient, then my conclusion was clearly it's the central fiscal capacity for macroeconomic stabilization, which also the IMF and the Commission and the ECB have been proposing for years and years. And I think it would really add to the architecture of monetary union. Markets also look at this, financial markets. And as we all agree now more than ever that the international role of the euro should be strengthened, I think we should also look at the gaps that we still have, close the gaps to make monetary union more, more resilient. And that's why I came out with that proposal. But, I mean, you are a civil servant, but you also understand the politics of this very closely. How feasible is it and, and under what timescale? I guess you think this will only be precipitated by another crisis. Is that right? I think that's the experience in Europe that big jumps in integration typically happen during a crisis, something that the founding fathers of European Union already predicted. So it's not a surprise. And it's really, in a way, quite normal because... Big steps require big decisions in all member states. One always needs a consensus. One needs the agreement of all governments, all parliaments. And unless there's a crisis, the political will to get there is often not there. So, But it's good to have proposals ready in the drawer because when a crisis hits, there's often or typically not enough time to start from scratch. So it's good to be aware what's still missing and prepare also the technical details and the insiders, the experts from the different governments. If they are all aware and well prepared, then it's already much easier to deal with the next crisis. Yeah, so drawing the experience of the last 15 years and looking to the future, there's quite a common narrative now about the crisis and how it was ended by the ECB and the whatever-it-takes speech. I believe this is not a view you share. That's right. I think that's too narrow a view. Of course, the ECP played a big role in Mario Draghi's statement of whatever it takes in the summer of 2012 was important. But in my view, one has to understand that three factors came together to end the euro crisis. And the first and most important one is that the countries that lost market access did their homework. They worked very hard in the context of EFSF, ESM programs to overcome those problems. They regain competitiveness through internal devaluations, for instance, cutting civil service pay pensions by 10, 20% in Ireland and Portugal, but around 30% in Greece. This is a quick way to restore competitiveness in a monetary union where the nominal exchange rate is not available as a policy instrument. Countries did that. They reduced their current account deficits. They reduced their fiscal deficits. Ireland worked on its housing bubble. And they all implemented structural reforms. And we have seen the positive results of that the last few years until the pandemic hit. All the countries that went through EFSF and ESM adjustment programs had a better economic performance than the average of the euro area. So when I look back, what happened? How did we get out of the euro crisis, I always put this first. If the countries had not done their homework, 
then ECB policies alone would not help help at all. We would still be in a crisis. So the first point, again, the countries worked hard to overcome their problems. And it's quite interesting that by the summer of 2012, when Mario Draghi spoke, and he spoke well, and this was the important second point, to make clear to markets that the ECB would fully support us getting out of the crisis. But by that time, it was clear for the well-informed investors, and those are the investors I talked to frequently to sell my ESM bonds, that they were fully aware that the adjustment programs were already showing positive results. Looking at the different indicators at the time, we knew that the real effective exchange rate in Greece Portugal and Ireland had been coming down through internal devaluations. Fiscal deficits were coming down. It was still painful for the population, but one could see at the macroeconomic side very well that the program's working. And therefore, I think Mario Draghi came just the right moment to with his famous speech because the many of the international investors were beginning to understand the strategy behind our crisis management. The results were visible in the data. On top then came the ECB. That was good. And of course, the third element is that the money from the ESM was required, EFSF and ESM, because that was the only source of money for the budgets in these countries as a bridge financing. So in my view, three things happened and um, were responsible for getting out of the crisis the hard work in the countries to overcome their problems, ECB monetary policy, and the existence of the EFSF and ESM. And I think that's also important to understand what is happening now in the euro area, and in particular since the ECB started to normalize its interest rates. When that process began a year ago, there were many comments in newspapers, but also from some academics that said, now the ECB is raising rates, so we will get into the next euro crisis. And I reminded those people quite often that that is the wrong analysis. It would have been right if only the ECB had solved the first euro crisis. Then raising interest rates maybe could have led to another crisis. But that's not the right story. That's not the narrative that I favor. If one understands that first and foremost countries have overcome their problems, there are no serious macroeconomic imbalances in the euro area today. No country has a serious competitiveness problem vis-a-vis -vis the other member states of the euro area. There are no big current account deficits. Then why should the normalization of interest rates lead to another euro crisis? All countries pay a much lower share of GDP on their public debt today than 10 years ago. And the ESM is there in the background in case of need. Would you share the view maybe of more skeptical investors that while all that is true, a big element in this stabilization or in non-fragmentation was the ECB's new transition protection instrument so that that was also in the background as well as the ESM? Sure, that plays a role, like OMT played a role in 2012, because OMT was the instrument that was developed by the ECB to put some meat behind Mario Draghi's speech. But the OMT combines the conditionality approach of the ESM with the unlimited firepower of the ECB, and that had a very positive impact then on markets. 
the Transition Protection Instrument also tries to put together debt sustainability analysis of the Commission, the IMF, the ESM, all that is used as an input by the ECB to determine whether certain market developments are justified by fundamentals or not. So it's another, I think, positive approach that puts together the expertise of different institutions, and it's good to have it available in case of need. Okay, well, Klaus, thank you very much. You're most welcome. <laughs>